Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is David Bowes. I am the Executive Vice President of the Institute and I am pleased to have you all here. You know, I think sometimes when Randall O'Toole proposes a study or a book on traffic congestion or something like that, my reaction is, well, that's not an important issue. We should be doing big issues, you know, like war and peace and Obama's anniversary and the health care reform and things like that. But sometimes we discover that there's actually more people in the world who are interested in traffic congestion than are interested in President Obama's plans for health care or the cap-and-trade system or something like that. Um, I drive to work every day, so I certainly care about congestion, even though my instinct is to think of it as not a big issue. In terms of quality of life, it certainly is a significant issue for me in a way that it's hard to comprehend how cap-and-trade might have an influence on my life. So I drive to work every day, drive home from work every day. I care about congestion. I have to deal with congestion. And yet, I have chosen to live across a bridge from where I work, which means that obviously traffic uh, gets uh, channeled into a few very narrow uh, entryways into Washington. And I don't take Metro because it doesn't stop and start where I'm going. So it makes sense that I would be concerned about the issue of traffic congestion, and yet the fact that I don't live in the district is an indication that I don't find it as important an issue, as uh, damaging a problem as some people might think. Now, I think the conventional wisdom about transit is we should have more mass transit. It's cheaper, it's green, and really it's just nicer. But sometimes it seems like everybody thinks that everybody else should take mass transit so that the roads I drive on wouldn't be so crowded. And that certainly makes sense to me. I think maybe the fundamental question that we're talking about here is how can we move more people faster at less cost, or can we? We have three distinguished speakers to address that topic. Um, I'm going to go ahead and introduce them all right now. First up, is the author of the new book, Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It, uh, Randall O'Toole. Randall O'Toole is a bicycling, bird-watching, bolo-wearing graduate of the University of Oregon, just the sort of person who hates cars and loves mass transit. But you may find out in a minute that he will surprise you. More formally, Randall is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute where he specializes in public uh, lands, urban growth, and transportation issues. His previous books include The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths and The Best Laid Plans, How Government Planning Harms Your Quality of Life, Your Pocketbook, and Your Future. And he's going to talk today about his new book, Gridlock. Commenting then, uh, will be Michael Replogle, who is Global Policy Director and founder of the Institute for Transportation and Development Policy, which promotes smart growth, bus rapid transit, non-motorized transportation, and travel demand management in cities worldwide. He is an advisor to the Asian Development Bank, the United Nations Environment Program, and the Environmental Defense Fund, where he worked for most of the past two decades. And I am particularly honored to be able to introduce 
uh, in a few minutes, Anthony Downs, who is best known to me as the author of An Economic Theory of Democracy, one of the pioneering books of public choice, which pointed out that voting is irrational and voters are ignorant. And I'm sure the White House is more sympathetic to that message today than they were a year ago. (laughs) He has also uh, been, for the past 30 years, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. And besides his early interest in economic theory, he is also an expert on real estate economics, housing, transportation, and smart growth. His many books include, most recently, Real Estate and the Financial Crisis, and perhaps most relevantly for our purposes today, Still Stuck in Traffic. So with that, please let me uh, please welcome Randall O'Toole, the author of Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It. Randall. Thank you, David, and thank you, everybody, for coming. I recognize a lot of faces from previous events we've had, so I'm glad to see that you aren't tired of listening to me rant and rave about transportation issues. Uh, The book Gridlock tries to break new ground. As I was doing my research, I came to the realization that America is on the verge of a transportation revolution and nobody knows about it. That revolution is not going to be high-speed rail. It's not going to have anything to do with light rail or streetcars or any form of collective transportation. Despite the fact that somebody sent me an email yesterday saying, you're a dinosaur because you don't realize that collective transportation is much better than personal transportation, the reality is that collective transportation is obsolete and uh, will no longer be necessary in the future. To understand why collective transportation is not in our future, I invite you to think back a century and two centuries to what transportation looked like in the United States in 1810 and in 1910. In 1810, almost no one in the world had ever traveled faster than a horse can run and lived to tell about it. Almost no one in the world had ever traveled by any form of mechanized transportation. Actually, the first steamboat in America was demonstrated in 1787 in Philadelphia before the members of the uh, uh, Constitutional Convention. But the only attempts to actually put steamboats into uh, commercial practice had failed. Uh, So in 1810, we were pretty much confined to foot power, horsepower, wind power, and river power for transportation, which meant people didn't move very much, they didn't move very fast. Fast forward to 1910. The United States had had, had witnessed amazing transportation revolutions. The steamboat, the canal, the steam railroad, bicycles, and electric streetcars. Each of these revolutions had brought about huge changes in our economy, in people's wealth, and in people's lifestyle. And yet, in 1910, most Americans still traveled not much more than they had in 1810. That's, first of all, because three of these five revolutions, steamboats, canals, and railroads, were mainly revolutions in freight. They didn't serve passengers all that much, and the passengers they did serve tended to be very wealthy. The two revolutions that were concerned mainly with passengers, bicycles and streetcars, mainly served urbanites. And most Americans in 1910 still lived in rural areas. 
And even those who lived in rural urban areas, most of them could not afford a streetcar fare. And many of them were not able to ride a bicycle. So the average American, uh, most Americans, probably still went only about 2,000 miles a year, which, which I figure was about the average in 1810. There were some Americans who went much further, and so the average was higher. But for most Americans, they were still confined to foot. Uh, and in rural areas, people had horses. Then came the Model T Ford, and in particular, mass-produced Model T Ford. The first moving assembly line was in 1913, and that revolutionized everything. It changed everything because it made it possible to make cars cheap, and it forced Ford and other people who adapted the moving assembly line to increase worker pay. So for the first time, the workers could afford to buy the cars they were making. And that revolutionized everything. It greatly increased our incomes. Since then, our incomes have increased seven times. And I believe about at least half of that was due primarily to the automobile and mass production, techniques of mass production. Since that time, home ownership rates have increased by more than 50%. And the reason for that is that people who once could not afford to own a home because they couldn't afford to buy land within walking distance of their work could now drive further away and could now buy cheap land and then buy, build a home on that cheap land. And so we had a whole new class of people who could never before own their homes, owning homes. It made it possible for people to get access to low-quality, low-cost consumer goods, high-quality but low-cost consumer goods, goods that people never had access before. before. Uh, healthcare social and recreation opportunities. All kinds of things were improved by the automobile. The automobile is one of the highest incarnations of personal freedom ever developed. And all over the world, people start buying automobiles as soon as they can afford to do so, and it really doesn't take that much income to be able to afford an automobile. And once you've got one, your income goes up anyway, and you can afford it. Despite all these advantages, there are people who want to reduce our mobility. They use soothing terms like smart growth and livability and traffic calming and choice. But these ideas are anything but smart and livable. And they take away our freedoms, not offer us more choices. Now, in his introduction, David said that the fundamental issue was finding the fastest, cheapest ways of getting around. But for many people, the fundamental issue is that that is not the fundamental issue. They think other things are more important than the fastest, cheapest ways of getting around. And so last week, Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood announced that he was eliminating the cost efficiency requirements that had been imposed by the Bush administration on federal transit grants. Those requirements required that local transit agencies prove to the federal government that their proposals were cost met some measure of cost efficiency before the federal government would fund them. In particular, the Federal, the federal Transit Administration announced during the Bush years that they would not fund any streetcar projects unless they could be proved to be more cost efficient than buses. But every transit agency knew that buses were far more cost efficient than streetcars. So when those rules came out, they almost every transit agency dropped any uh, idea that they would apply for federal funds. Well, now LaHood, Ray LaHood has said, that's no longer an issue. We don't care about cost. 
We don't care about how much money you waste. What we care about is livability. Now, have you ever heard a word that sounds so wonderful and has so little meaning as livability? Well, here you are inside the Washington Beltway. Of course, you hear words like that every day. But we know, I know what livability means because I come from Oregon, which was the pioneer, along with California, in most of these livability concepts. Most of the things that are now called livability, which have been called smart growth, been called new urbanism, growth management planning, all kinds of terms. What they mean is less affordable housing, more traffic congestion, higher taxes, and lower budgets for essential urban services like schools, fire, police, and libraries. Is that your idea of livability? It's not my idea of livability. And I don't think it's the idea of livability for most Americans, but there is an elite group of people who want to define livability in their way and by writing the rules so that livability is how the federal government decides how to give out its transportation dollars rather than efficiency, they're going to spend the money the way they want rather than the way you might think it ought to be spent. They say they want to give people housing choices. What they mean is, and it says so right in their plans, they want to reduce the percentage of Americans who live in single-family homes on large lots. Instead, more of those people should live in multifamily homes or at best in a single-family home on a tiny lot because that way they'll be closer together and more likely to walk or take their streetcars than to drive. They say they want to give people transportation choices, but it says right in their plans that they want to reduce the per amount of per capita driving people do and instead get people to ride transit or walk or bicycle. Now, they say they want it to be affordable, but transit is not affordable. The city of New York has the most efficient transit systems in America. They spend 75 cents a passenger mile running their transit systems. They don't charge 75 cents, but they spend 75 cents. Driving costs Americans, including all subsidies, less than 25 cents a passenger mile. So if we're talking about substituting transit for driving, we're talking about tripling the cost, we're talking about reducing the amount of travel you're going to get to do because you won't be able to afford to travel as much. They say they're going to build high-speed rail. Who's going to ride that? I was in New York City yesterday. I looked up how much is it going to cost for me to get to Washington, D.C. Amtrak, Acela, said $155. Megabus said $15.5. One-tenth the cost of the moderately high-speed Acela. Megabus had free wireless Internet. Amtrak had no wireless Internet. I took Megabus. It took me 90 minutes longer. I got a lot of work done along the way. I would not have gotten on Amtrak. So, uh... <clears throat> the only people who are going to ride high-speed trains are going to be the rich. Everybody else is going to have to pay for them because despite the high rates, it's still going to be subsidized. China just opened the fastest high-speed train in the world. The rates to, to ride that train are five times greater than the rates to ride a regular train. Who's going to pay that? Not most Chinese. The livability agenda is going to create a two-class society. The people who are wealthy enough to be able to afford to drive and get around all the obstacles we're going to put in front of them and live in single-family homes, and the people who are going to be stuck in apartments 
and stuck with limited transportation choices. And once you have that two-class society, people are going to be stuck because the automobile and home ownership are two of the best ways of getting out of poverty. If you own your own home, you can borrow against it and start a small business. You can do all kinds of things. Most small businesses in America are started partly with funds that the business owner takes in a home and a loan based on their home. Now, for the last two decades, we've been having this debate. It's been a debate between roads and railroads, light rail and freeways, high-speed rail and interstate highways. I'm here to tell you that debate is obsolete. That debate is obsolete because of the next transportation revolution. This revolution was actually foreseen more than 70 years ago by an interesting man named Norman Bel Geddes. He dreamed of gleaming highways across the country. And he expressed that dream in the Futurama exhibit, the General Motors Futurama exhibit, at uh, the 1939 New York World's Fair. Now, people say it's a General Motors exhibit, but it was Norman Bel Geddes' exhibit. He had to work hard to get General Motors to sponsor it. Initially, Goodyear was going to sponsor it, and they backed out. Shell was going to sponsor it. They backed out. He finally persuaded General Motors to sponsor it. But it was his idea. It was a miniature view of the United States. You had Grand Canyon, you had big cities, you had farms, and all across it were these wonderful highways with cars moving unimpeded by stoplights, by congestion, by anything else. Fifty years later, people said, okay, we built the interstate highway system, we've fulfilled Norman <laughs> Belgettis' dream. They were wrong. What you don't see by looking at the still grainy black and white photos of Futurama was that those cars were operated without drivers. In Belgettis' dream, you'd be able to get in your car, punch your destination, <coughs> and travel 3,000 miles across the country in 24 hours without driving yourself. <coughs> All cars and trucks would be driven automatically. He didn't know what a computer was. He didn't know exactly how it was going to work. He had some ideas, which turned out to be pretty close <coughs> to how people have... Uh, uh, the, the, the technology developed, but uh, he didn't know exactly how it was going to work, but he was certain it was going to happen. Why didn't it happen? Well, we can talk about that in, in a minute, but uh, if we did do that, the advantages would be tremendous. Safety, first of all, 40,000 people a year die in automobile accidents. Most of that would be gone. Uh, congestion would go away. You could fit far more cars on a freeway. Right now, you can put 2,000 cars per hour down a freeway lane, this could increase it to six to 8,000 cars per hour without any safety hazards. Speed, you would have, wouldn't have any congestion. You could go faster. Since auto accidents would be much less of a problem, you could build cars lighter weight, so you could go faster using less energy. And you'd have less pollution for the same reason. A study that came out of uh, University of California found that relieving traffic congestion in Southern California would reduce greenhouse gas emissions from transportation by 30%. I was stunned. I never thought it would be that much. So you'd have enormous advantages to having driverless cars. And the amazing thing is the technology wasn't available in 1939, but we have the technology today. We can do it right now. We could have done it 10 years ago. In 1997, the state of California, working with the University of California and the Department, Federal Department of Transportation, demonstrated, and General Motors, demonstrated driverless cars on a new portion of Interstate 15. 
They put little magnets in the road, spaced them out. They put little sensors on the cars. The cars could steer the magnets. They put a whole bunch of cars that had the sensors. They drove them down the road at 60 miles an hour, one car length apart. Cars could pull out and pass other cars if they wanted to. Uh, they could get off at exits just following the magnets. You just tell them where to go. And they demonstrated it in 1997, and the deputy secretary of transportation came to the demonstration, and he said, that's great, boys. We're not going to do it. No more money is going to that. It turns out he used to be the head of the New York Transit, Metropolitan Transit Agency. He didn't want any more money going for anything that would compete against transit. His excuse was, Americans will never allow a computer to drive their car for them. Well, come on, that's a silly excuse. So we have the technology. We've given up on it from the government level. The states are too busy trying to maintain their roads to figure out how to improve their roads. Uh, and there's a kind of a chicken and the egg problem. I'm not going to buy a driverless car if there's no road to drive it on, and the state's not going to build a driverless highway if there's no cars to drive on it. And yet the auto manufacturers are stepping up. They are sneaking into your cars the technologies that will make it possible to have driverless cars tomorrow. First of all, adaptive cruise control. You probably all have cruise control on your car, if you have a car. Adaptive cruise control doesn't keep your speed the same. It senses the next car in front of you and keeps your speed the same as that car, keeps a fixed distance behind that car. When 20% of cars on the road get adaptive cruise control, a lot of congestion is just going to go away because a lot of congestion is caused by slow reaction times. When we have cars reacting instead of people reacting, that congestion will go away. You've heard of self-parking cars, but if you've heard of lane keep assist, you can buy a Honda or a Lexus or a Toyota <coughs> Prius or an Audi right now that has something called lane keep assist. The cars watch for the stripes in the roads, and they steer down the road for you. You don't have to steer. Now, legally, you have to keep your hands on the wheel. This is where our institutions are backwards. But the car is doing the steering for you. You combine all these technologies together, and basically making that car into a driverless car is nothing more than a software upgrade. We need to look towards this future rather than towards the past. This is a way out of the endless debate about roads versus rail. We don't need to build more roads, at least not a lot more roads, because the existing roads have four times the capacity if we adopt driverless cars. I believe that the Obama administration's goal is to build for the United States the finest 19th century transportation system ever devised. We need to build a 21st century transportation system. We need to encourage the states, which own the highways, to work with automobile manufacturers to set standards for driverless roads and start implement, set targets for implementing those roads as soon as possible. By 2030, we could have driverless roads throughout the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you, Randall. I was certainly disturbed early in your talk there to hear that the federal government was no longer going to seek to be cost efficient. <laughs> uh, 
Please welcome now for some comments Michael Replogel from the uh, Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. Well, I think uh, Mr. O'Toole uh, is very astute about transportation and in, in many of its aspects. And unfortunately, I think he gets some of the details uh, a bit wrong and, and finds himself, as he draws conclusions, moving towards a rather anti-urban perspective um, and that ultimately cloaks the old car and oil-dominated corporate agenda in a mantle of egalitarianism. I think Mr. O'Toole is correct that we do need to rely more on tolls and user fees, that we need to open public transportation more to private competition and to innovation, that we need to focus a major portion of transit subsidies on low and moderate income users with user side subsidies rather than on simply expanding capacity. And we need to do the same thing on the highway side. He's right that we need to change the perverse incentives in our dysfunctional federal funding formula for transportation assistance and replace them with simpler, uh, more performance-focused funding incentives with better accountability. I think he's a little bit wrong in the details of how he suggests that we do that in his book, but uh, is, is good to provoke a discussion around that. He's right that we need to find ways to spur more rapid adoption of technology innovation in transportation. I would agree with him. I think we're on the cusp of a revolution in transportation similar to that that we've experienced in telecommunications over the last several decades as information and communication technologies get applied to, to our surface transportation systems and offer up new potentials for much smarter supply chains on the freight side, much smarter information for users on the passenger transport side, and much smarter and safer management of our roads and public transportation. But all of that, I believe, doesn't lead us down a path of the destruction of any kind of collective transportation, as he would call public transport, but rather to develop the option of much richer transportation choices so that Americans have more control over how much they spend on transportation, and rather than hemorrhaging money out of their wallets, out of their household budgets, in order to get basic mobility, which is what happens today in America because of the lack of transportation choice, I believe that the vision for the future is one that we should be pursuing of expanding choices so that more Americans can spend fewer hours stuck in traffic, fewer hours spent chasing uh, to, to go to long distances where they can instead, with smarter community planning, live closer to their jobs, to their shopping, to their recreational opportunities, to where they take their kids for soccer, to where they uh, recreate and, and the like. And so that they can do that with walking, with cycling, with public transportation for more of those choices or using shared vehicles that they might find in their neighborhood rather than having to own a fleet of vehicles that sit in their driveway. And to do this in ways so that we spend less of our total 
household budgets across the nation collectively on transport and housing together by having smarter community patterns with greener buildings, with greener neighborhood designs that enable us to have a richer quality of life, to have better public spaces, spaces in which we can be happy, in which we can enjoy the company of other people, which is something that we're deprived of when we're traveling in our single-passenger automobiles down automated highways. I would agree with Randall that the vision of the future for 2050 probably does include much more automation of our highway systems for better safety, for better performance, lower emissions. But that will come at a much higher cost, just as we spend vastly more on telecommunications today than we did 30 years ago. We have a richer array of choices. We spend more on it, and we get more for our money. I think we'll see that, too, in 2050. But it, again, won't be the elimination of public transport or walking or cycling. I believe we will have a safer environment. As Sweden is pursuing zero deaths, we will move towards lower uh, accidents and fatalities with safer conditions for walking and cycling. I think we're, right now, Randall's uh, vision is blind to the huge inequities of our auto-dependent transport system. Uh, it's, it's plainly wrong when he says in his, his book that, peop, quote, people whose incomes are in the lowest 20 percent probably drive almost as much as those whose incomes are in the highest 20 percent. Indeed, studies uh, show that, that, people, that the more money people have in America, the more miles they drive every year. It's a direct correspondence. And so those who drive the most miles drive quite a few miles more than those who, drive, who are in the lowest income. Moreover, the current system that we have disproportionately rewards those who have the highest incomes with subsidies. About, only about 60% of the cost of driving is covered out of user fees. And, and for example, we spend more than half a trillion dollars a year in American society on free parking which is money that people don't get in their wallets, in their paychecks. Uh, it's benefits that people don't get if they take the bus or they share a ride or take a bicycle or walk to go to a shopping center or to their workplace. People who drive get those subsidies. People who don't drive have to pay out of their wallet every time they get on the bus. People who live in transit-oriented communities that have a richer array of transit choices spend a lower share of their income on housing and transportation combined. They also tend to have better health overall, according to recent studies. So I think as we look for strategies to move forward, we need to find ways of reforming our transportation programs. Uh, and I think O'Toole is good to to open up a provocative debate on this. But eliminating a role for the federal government in transportation is not the direction to go. Uh, eliminating uh, subsidies for public transportation is not the way to go. Restructuring our programs and our subsidies does make a lot of sense. Um, we certainly need to pay more attention to the environmental performance of our transportation system. Globally, about 13% of all greenhouse emissions 
are from transportation, and between 1970 and 2006, global greenhouse emissions from transportation increased by 130 percent. Those emissions are expected to increase a further 57 percent by 2030, with transportation in developing countries accounting for about 80 percent of that increase, both from passenger and freight. Now, that's not to say that we should neglect what's going on in our transport sector in the United States, where greenhouse gas growth has indeed been one of our fastest sources of greenhouse growth and accounts for nearly a third of our greenhouse emissions, actually more like 40 percent if you count the upstream emissions from the petroleum, production of petroleum and, and cars. So overall, we have a lot of opportunity to find ways of developing a new 21st century economy in reforming our transportation systems, in bringing new modern technologies, better information management, um, and better travel choices to transportation with smarter growth, more compact development that enables more walking, cycling, and public transport so that people can save money instead of spending money um, for transportation and housing consumption that may not be necessary to meet their daily activity needs and, uh, and the needs of our economy if we organize ourselves more efficiently and if we manage our transportation systems with uh, a focus on efficiency. But getting to those goals will require rethinking how we reward and spend money on transportation, and simply uh, throwing money out by formula at the state level and the federal level isn't the way to get there. I think O'Toole is, is correct in saying we need to rethink some of those systems, and I would suggest that some of the visions that come out of the new national blueprints that we've seen from a couple of national commissions, from the bipartisan policy uh, transportation commission study that was recently released, offer some pathways to the future, moving towards mileage-based road user charges that are linked to smart congestion charging, but that also continue to reward states and cities for doing effective long-range and short-range transport planning and programming that focuses on getting performance from the overall system. Those who are working to develop performance-based systems should be getting rewarded by our funding system. Uh, and those who are not making progress on these kinds of performance uh, should be denied at least a portion of federal funding assistance as we're looking for ways to move forward. We should be looking to the example of places like Singapore, where 80 percent, the goal that's been set publicly is to keep 80 percent of the arterials and the motorways free-flowing, uh, to keep them free-flowing at least 80 percent of the time by using congestion charges on the roadway network to manage the traffic in a smart way, and where the charges paid by motorists, which are much higher than in the U.S., go to fund an effective public transport system and affordable housing close to public transportation. Um, Singapore does this within a market-based system. Um, they're competing successfully in the world economy increasingly with countries like our own, and I think we have a lot to learn from them. So I'll stop there and uh, be happy to enjoy the discussion later. Thank you. Thank you.
And now, please welcome Anthony Downs from the Brookings Institution. Well, I believe in being, <clears throat> being completely fair, so I will disagree with both speakers who have gone before me. On the other hand, I think Randall O'Toole's book, Gridlock, is both an impressive essay on the virtues of highways and automobiles as means of transportation and an intelligent chastisement against the public transit as a means of reducing congestion and the irrational and often dishonest behavior of transit advocates. He presents in his book an intelligent and well-documented case against the present emphasis on using tax dollars for transit. And one of the things that Mr. Replogle didn't mention is that transit has a higher subsidy rate than does automobiles. To a great extent, I'm, I'm a supporter of, of Randall's ideas on these issues. I agree with nearly all of what he says about the inability of transit to replace the automobile and achieve widespread American mobility. This book will not be popular in public transit circles, but he fully documents most of his criticisms. O'Toole also rebukes urban planners who want to influence transportation by changing the behavior of Americans concerning where they live, at what densities, and what means of transportation they use every day. He is rightly skeptical about the whole smart growth movement. Now, I'd like to point out that in the United States, the people who are supporting the expansion of public transit have a long way to go. In the 2000 census, only 4% of the people who commuted every day used public transit. Over 80% used automobiles. Throughout European countries in even later years, over 80% of all the movement of people in each country, major country in Europe are by automobiles, not by public transit. In the United States, you'd have to have a gigantic increase in transit to make any significant dent in what automobiles <laughs> now do. So uh, the, the, the words which easily flow from the smart growth's uh, eloquent mouths do not fit reality, in my opinion. They think that many small changes can add up to some gigantic change, which reminds me of something that happened to me when I was much younger. I used to play a game called Spin the Bottle. How many of you in this room have ever played Spin the Bottle? May I see your hands? Well, I see some of you are aware that Spin the Bottle is a game which a girl spins a Coke bottle but points at a boy. She either has to kiss him or pay him a nickel. And I played this game a whole lot when I was very young, with the surprising result that by the age of 14, I owned my own home. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's the that's kind of outcome that the transit advocates are, are assuming will happen somehow. Now, I agree with and respect most of the analysis in Randall's book. But since I only have 20 minutes, according to the rules, to discuss the entire book, I'm going to concentrate on a few points with which I don't agree. O'Toole blames traffic congestion mainly on two factors, but I believe he overlooks the root cause of peak hour traffic congestion in metropolitan areas all over the world. He first blames congestion on the tendency of U.S. public funders of transportation, especially at the federal level, to shift money away from roads and highways to public transit. O'Toole claims with much evidence that a majority of Americans want to use their own private cars and trucks for transportation. And incidentally, over 92% of all the households in the United States, including the poorest ones, have access to 
at least one automobile. So shifting money away from roads, as O'Toole claims, has prevented us from building enough more highways to reduce congestion. But I think that's inaccurate because the amount of funding shifted from highways to transit is still too small to counteract the tremendous prevalence and spread of congestion. O'Toole also criticizes the desire of urban planners and transportation officials to use public transportation funds to influence household behavior as a means of combating congestion. He opposes planners' designs to promote compact development, urban growth boundaries, small lot zoning, and higher densities, precisely in order to get people out of their cars onto transit, walking, and bicycling, since that's the only way it seems that that could be done. Since most people don't buy into those plans, they don't reduce congestion. In fact, in my analysis of the impact of light rail on, on transit, on congestion throughout the country, it has had no impact whatsoever on reducing automobile traffic congestion. However, in my opinion, O'Toole omits the true cause of traffic congestion in modern society. I believe traffic congestion is an inescapable result of the way that large metropolitan areas seek to maximize their over, overall productive efficiency. Peak hour congestion is a sign of success and prosperity, not a systemic failure. And this is most evident in a period of recession like we've had uh, in different parts of the country in the past decade. Uh, traffic congestion got much less in the San Francisco Bay Area after the, the Internet bubble burst in 2000 and, and jobs disappeared overnight. And traffic congestion gets much worse the more prosperous we are. In, in all metropolitan areas, efficiency is maximized by having nearly all workers at their jobs during the same hours each day so that they can effectively interact with each other. That interaction generates great economic productivity. In addition, we want children to attend school simultaneously so teachers, children, and administrators can interact cooperatively. Thus, society benefits when workers and students travel each day during many of the same hours. But metro areas cannot afford to build enough roads and transit systems to enable all those people to move simultaneously at high speeds. Instead, many of those peak hour movers must wait for others to move first, and the time spent waiting is congestion. Can we eliminate such peak hour congestion by expanding our supply of roads or making people more users of transit? I don't believe we can. Existing metropolitan areas are already too built up to permit much new construction, except at extremely high costs and disruption of, <coughs> of existing communities. Therefore, as populations and incomes rise in modern and developing metropolitan areas, and more and more households have two or more workers who have to get to work, traffic congestion will inescapably get worse. This trend has been occurring for the least the past 60 years in the United States and Europe, and now it's going on in Asia, too. O'Toole's and most politicians and smart growth planners cannot accept this conclusion as realistic. They don't like to accept it because most people do not like congestion. And since they're trying to build up public support for their cause from the general public, they just reject the idea that congestion is in inevitable. So these leaders and thinkers propose what I call fantasy solutions rather than trying to persuade themselves and the citizenry to face the facts. Realistically, raising our quality of life through greater productivity has negative trade-offs with no easy remedies, and congestion is one of those trade-offs. 
productive efficiency has unexpected consequences, which reminds me of a story, of course, about a woman who went into a pet shop and she saw a beautiful parrot on the other side of the pet shop. She said to the owner of the of a pet shop, I've got to have that parrot. He said, no, you wouldn't like that parrot. She said, oh, yes, he just his colors exactly match the new furniture I just bought from my living room. I've got to have the parrot. He says, no, she, you'd be very unhappy. He said, why would I be unhappy? Because that parrot was brought up in a brothel, and he speaks with terrible, profane language. She said, oh, no, I'm a sophisticated modern woman. That doesn't bother me. I'd like to get the parrot. So she bought the parrot. She put the parrot in a ca- covered cage, took it home, set the cage on a stand in the living room, Stood there looking at him, and then she whipped the cover off, and the parrot woke up and looked up, and he said, Ooh, a new madam. Just then her three beautiful teenage daughters walked in the room, and the parrot looked up and said, Ooh, new girls. Just then her husband walked in the room, and the parrot looked up and said, Hi, Irv. (laughs) (laughs) So some things we think are going to work out very well, in fact, don't. They have other consequences we hadn't anticipated. Now, my second criticism is that O'Toole proposes what I consider a magical technical solution to traffic congestion as something that's likely to occur soon. He says that we should shift the means of driving vehicles from people in them to automated systems built into them or into the highways under them or both. He claims the technical means of doing this already exist. All we have to do is to get them incorporated into our driving activities. I am not a technical expert, but I will, for the moment, assume that he is correct, that this is technically possible once such a shift is made. The big problem is making the shift. In 2006, there were 242 million motor vehicles registered in the United States. O'Toole says that the entire fleet of motor vehicles turns over about every 18 years. But how do we make the transition from having zero automated vehicles to having over 250 million of them, a shift which clearly has to occur over many years? His analysis reminds me of the problem that the British government faced when someone suggested they switch to driving on the right side of the road instead of the left side so that they could be like the rest of Europe and the United States. Some expert claimed it would be easier if they did it gradually. He proposed moving... He proposed moving trucks from the left to the right side in the first month, buses in the second month, and cars in the third month. Fortunately, they didn't do it. Now, how can we introduce automated driving gradually into a world of millions of driver-operated vehicles without causing huge problems? And how will automated vehicles operate on our expressways where drivers are constantly entering and leaving and cutting across lanes from one place to another? And who pays the huge financial costs of such a transition, including rebuilding all of our highways or mounting the electrical uh, transmitters or magnets in them, or the massive liabilities that would occur from a crash of hundreds of automated vehicles all in a line separated by 22 feet if they suddenly crashed into each other? O'Toole says that a single lane can now handle up to 2,200 vehicles per hour at 60 miles an hour. That would require 140 feet of space between vehicles, or 1.6 seconds of travel time at 60 miles an hour. The safe distance is now considered to be 2 seconds, or 176 feet, which doesn't seem like much, but it's enough that you could stop your car. But O'Toole says automatic driving would get at least 8,000 vehicles per hour at the same speed. At 60 miles an hour, that would require having only 22 feet between vehicles, or one-fourth of one second interval between them. 
That is not enough time to stop or even slow down when the vehicle in front of you slows down. His view seems very unrealistic. Automatic drivers in, the, in his system need the same kind of discipline that you'd have in a, in a, if a computer could act instantaneously. And discipline is important in all aspects of life, which reminds me of a story, of course, <laughs> about a farmer who had two teenage sons, and they're increasingly using profanity. And his wife was getting very disturbed because she said, these boys are getting out of control. We've got to do something. He said, all right, the, tomorrow morning at breakfast, I'll start disciplining them. Next morning, he and his wife were sitting at the breakfast table. In come the two teenage sons, and the older one sits down and say, with a clatter and says, where are the goddamn cornflakes? And the fire, farmer is a huge man. He stood up. He grabbed his son by the throat. He gave him a right cross, knocked him up against the wall, went over and stomped on him picked him up, threw him down a chair, and turned to his other son and said, now what do you want? His other son looked at him and said, I don't know, but you can bet your ass it isn't cornflakes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I am, not, I, I am not convinced that a fully automated system, I'm not convinced that a fully automated system would have the kind of discipline, in spite of the fact that machines can react fast, uh, to make it possible to have 8,000 vehicles in a lane at 60 miles an hour. Moreover, since all speeds would be automatic, whenever a vehicle near the head of the lane wanted to slow down to so as to get off the road, all others would have to do so too. In modern travel, people are constantly getting off or onto the crowded roads, thereby causing an all-automated line to stop and start frequently. Now, I do not believe that this system can be introduced over a whole nation without using a de facto dictatorship by the very federal transportation planners that O'Toole disapproves of. Furthermore, in life in general, merely because some arrangements are technically possible under ideal conditions does not mean they are really realistic or worth accepting. For many years, we have been able to build supersonic airliners that can travel at Mach 2 or Mach 3, but we don't use them because they're too costly and too noisy. I have several other less significant quarrels with Mr. O'Toole's analysis. O'Toole discounts the long-range transportation planning the federal government requires of state, local, and metropolitan agencies, and he points out in his book that these agencies are completely ignoring the need to, to carry out plans and, and to evaluate how well their planning has been going on. I think that's a very a significant thing for him to point out. For many years, uh, we have been... Well, no, I'm sorry. Major transportation systems last a long time, so his favoring only short-term planning uh, doesn't really work. Our systems last decades for both roads and rail. We are still driving on the interstate highway started in 1956, so it is impossible to plan major transportation systems without looking far ahead, even if our foresight is weak, and I agree that it's weak. The second problem is his opposition to considering land uses, densities, and future growth patterns in planning transportation systems. He thinks we should stick with the traditional purely engineering approach of highway designers and ignore likely future land uses. But transportation is inherently linked to land use patterns and future growth locations. I agree then that transportation should not be considered a tool to change densities or to control future growth. But to wholly ignore those variables is to build transportation in a vacuum to go back to disregarding who is going to be served and where. A third problem of O'Toole's is his ambivalent attitude towards federal roles in transportation planning. He thinks federal power is corrupt, and I think that has been amply demonstrated by behavior in Washington in the last year. 
So we should put all transportation planning in state and local hands. But it was the federal power and the CAFE standards and air pollution rules that produced the technical improvements in automobiles that he likes. Moreover, how could we create a national network of automated highways without major interstate financing and coordination? So his own cure depends on instruments that he say, says is incompetent. In conclusion, I learned a lot from this well-written book. O'Toole criticizes public transit, urban planners, and their unholy alliances, and his criticisms are powerful and well-documented. The Government Accountability Office should buy hundreds of copies of this book and use them to persuade the Department of Transportation to start paying more attention to what they're supposed to be doing but aren't. Yet I am skeptical of his high-tech solution to get rid of congestion and some of the inconsistencies in his reasoning. I remain convinced that traffic congestion is an inescapable result of growing population and prosperity, even though it is a pain in the neck for millions of commuters. Sometimes there is no solution to some irritating condition because it is part of the larger set of benefits that greatly enriches us. So we just have to get used to it, since overall we're better off living with congestion than we would be without it. Thank you. All right, let's open this up for some uh, questions, discussion from the audience. Please wait for the microphone to come and introduce yourself. Um, I'm just going to mention to people, take the microphone right there, right there. Um, I'm just going to mention uh, while I have a moment that if you want to hear more of Randall O'Toole, even after the next 15 minutes or so, um, he'll be on uh, John Stossel's show tomorrow night on Fox Business at 8 p.m., uh, so tune in there. Yes, right here. Uh, first, uh, I very much appreciate and uh, like the vision of a, an efficient uh, driverless car spaced closely together. I think that's a great idea. Uh, but I have a question. This generates a question, and uh, Downs uh, anticipated it, so I'll narrow it. Uh, if you have a, uh, a completely reliable car and control system, I suspect your idea would work quite well. Uh, right uh, these days, in the last 20 years, we spoke of Six Sigma manufacturing. Uh, probably you'd have to go to eight or ten Sigma or something like that. I'd like a comment on the reliability of the entire system. Well, those of you who use Windows instead of Macintosh are certainly asking that question uh, silently and, and not just out loud. Those of us who use Macintosh don't worry about that quite as much. Uh, the fact is, Cars built today already have lots of computers in them. Uh, many high-end cars today have more computers, uh, more processors, and more processing power than many jet airliners have for, uh, uh, for controlling the, uh, the avionics of that airliner. So, and those computers turn out to be very reliable. And one of the reasons why they're reliable is because they have a very narrow purpose. Each computer has a narrow purpose. The software has been well tested, and it knows what it's supposed to do. It's not given uh, the broad goal that we give our laptop or our desktop computers that may do anything from uh, print out to uh, word process to do layout and graphics and so on and so forth, uh, or edit video or whatever. Because each computer has a narrow purpose uh, and it's well-tested, the, and the, reli the reliability tends to be very high. So adding driverless capabilities to a system that already is heavy with reliable computers I don't think is going to uh, increase the unreliability. 
uh, I think that that's going to be very easy to do. And we've got demonstrations of that. The uh, one thing I didn't mention was the uh, the only government entity that is doing any work on driverless cars right now is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration. They had a kind of an X prize thing going. They gave uh, manufacturers and experimenters, experimenters a challenge. If you can drive a car, driverless car, through a, an urban area me meeting certain tests in a certain amount of time, you'd win so many million dollars. And uh, a bunch of entries were made. The entry that won was the Cornell General Motors entry. The Stanford Volkswagen entry came in second. They would actually won the first round, and then they came in second in the second round. Uh, so uh, we know that it's possible. We know that there are still uh, obstacles there. But according to La Lawrence Burns, the head of the uh, General Motors Research Division at the time, um, the main obstacles today are institutional and bureaucratic, not technological. Well, you know, this related to something that, that Tony was saying, that uh, if one car slows down, they're all going to have to slow down. But actually, if one car slows down, if a car has a blowout or something, the, the, I'm sure it would be programmed to pull over into the breakdown lane. And uh, as one car slows down, because the other cars have faster reaction times, there wouldn't be much congestion involved in that. The reason why we have congestion is because of slow reaction times. You have pulses going through. I'm sure you've all been driving down the road at some point, and you get stuck in stop-and-go traffic, and it lasts for a while, and then all of a sudden everybody starts going again. You never see what caused it. Uh, and that's because of people slow reaction times. When we can speed up reaction times, that kind of congestion is going to go away. I suppose there's always the question about whether drivers today are tuned to a Six Sigma level. Um, but, Randall, let me, let me press you on this before I, I let Michael jump in. With what Tony said, are you talking about cars driving down the highway at 70 miles an hour with 22 feet between them? That does sound kind of scary. Well, it, it's been successfully tested, as I say. It hasn't been tested with more than eight vehicles at a time. Uh, but uh, at 70 miles an hour, they'd be only about 15 feet between them. I said 60 miles an hour. Well, it was tested with one car length between them, so it was about 20 feet between them. Uh, and I'm not sure whether they made it to 70 miles an hour, but I know they made it to over 60 miles an hour in the test. So I'm, I'm sure it can work. Whether we can squeeze 8,000 cars an hour or might be only 6,000 cars an hour, even if it's only 4,000 cars an hour down a freeway lane, that's double the existing capacities. Imagine that you had double the freeway space. That does not necessarily mean there'd be double the driving. Uh, it would mean that you'd have a, a lot less congestion than we have today. Michael? Well, I think <clears throat> this, this really gets to looking at what are the knock-on impacts of these kinds of technological developments. We saw with the introduction of airbags and anti-lock brakes that drivers responded to those new safety systems by reducing the length of of space between them and the cars in front of them. They actually increased the throughput capacity of our roads as drivers compensated for the benefits of those safety systems, and we didn't get as much safety improvement as we might have because of the driver's response to having those support systems. Now, with these kinds of new technologies like smart adaptive cruise control that 
deals also that communicates with the car in front of you, car behind you, the cars on either side of you, that recognizes pedestrians uh, and other objects in the road space. I have no doubt we can improve the safety of our system, increase the capacity throughput of our systems at some significant costs. A, a dangerous side effect of this, though, may well be that as it alleviates some of the congestion that we now face, that we'll face a new generation of hypersprawl as people say, well, I can now commute 130 miles to get to my job on these smarter highways in, my, in our smarter cars in 20 or 30 years. And that has implications for our energy security, for our dependence on foreign oil, for our greenhouse gas intensity of our community development, which I think we need to contemplate carefully as we consider whether it makes more sense to invest in smarter uh, public transport systems for those kinds of longer distance uh, connections. I think one of the one of the uh, mysteries of Randall's suggestion is how do you make the transition for 250 million vehicles which are not now automated? How do you make the transition to when all of them are automated uh, over a period of time when it takes 18 years is to turn over <coughs> the stock? And how do you control who runs the roads and who prepares which roads to be automated and which not, and how do you control movement onto them? That seems the transition process is a complete mystery to me, and I didn't see any discussion of it in your book. Well, I'm sorry you missed that. We have that kind of problem confronts all sorts of industries today. My first personal computer had uh, uh, Centronics port to, com to communicate with the printer. And then we got serial ports, and then we got uh, uh, USB ports, and now we have FireWire ports. Uh, and those kinds of transitions have been smooth. They've been introduced by the computer industry, by the printer industry working together, uh, the software industry working together, and it's, it's been successful. We see the same thing in the cell phone industry. Is anybody really aware that your cell phone uses a completely def different technology today than it did 10 years ago? No, it just happened. Uh, and it's partly because they're private players working on a decentralized basis, but the, working in the free marketplace that encourages a tremendous amount of cooperation. When we have government ownership of roads, there's no encouragement for cooperation, and there's no encouragement for innovation, and so we're not, we aren't having this. And so the big question for me as I was writing this book was not how, how can we make this happen technologically, because uh, I'm sure we can introduce driverless cars in traffic with driver-operated cars and have a transition period where some are driverless and some are driver-operated and then eventually work to the point where they're all driverless. But uh, the question is, what's the institutional changes we need? Should we privatize our roads first and let, then let the private road owners uh, develop the driverless technology, or is it going to work better to encourage our public road owners to promote driverless technology? And uh, I decided to go that way because I thought the institutional barriers to getting the state highway departments to getting driverless, adopting driverless highway technologies were smaller than the institutional and, and political barriers to trying to privatize the roads right away. All right. Read the book, read that chapter, and see whether you think he adequately answered it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I'll take a question right there by the door, and then right here. One of the arguments that often hear is... Yeah. 
One of the arguments you often hear against mass transit, and the studies have indicated this, is people don't like to take mass transit because they, they lose control of their own destiny. They have to go where the mass transit goes. They have to go on a schedule. It, it's somewhat psychological, and I was just wondering, on, self -drive, on uh, cars that are automated, is there not a psychological problem there of people losing the freedom of being behind the wheel? That's the American culture. How do you get around that? Well, that was the Deputy Transportation Secretary's excuse for canceling the programs, but I don't think that's a big problem. I mean, when you go to an airport, a lot of airports today have driverless vehicles taking you from terminal to terminal. And I don't see any people saying, oh, my God, I can't go on that because it's got a robot operating it. I have to go in a, in a vehicle that's operated by a human being. I, I've never seen anybody refuse to take one of those vehicles because it was driverless. Uh, so I don't think that's a problem. I think the, the bigger problem is... Uh, there's a feeling on the part of many people that because I'm in control of the car, I'm having more fun uh, having, being in control of the car. And for those people, you know, we can always keep a legacy set of roads here and there that are open to driver-operated vehicles and, and just say, look, if you want to take the risk of, of driving your own vehicle, you can, you can drive on old Route 66, and other people can then go on the parallel driverless road. But... Uh, uh, in the long run, I don't think that's going to be an issue. There may be times with all vehicles that you'll operate them in both modes. But in congestion, in, in long-distance travel, and in, in, in uh, urban areas, I think we're going to want to heavily rely on the driverless modes. Yeah, I would just suggest that, that the vision I have for 2050 is a little different than Randall's in terms of how these smart highways and smart vehicles operate. I think in the end... People don't want to give up the autonomy of being in control of their car and that these will be driver assistance systems, not driver replacement systems. And there will be systems that will help drivers keep to the speed limit, that it will help drivers platoon more effectively in, on, on highways that are limited access. But when you get onto a local street, you're still going to be responsible for driving and you still, you know, if you're drunk behind the wheel, you're not going to be a responsible driver. In fact, your car will probably turn itself off if you're sitting there and you're breathing alcohol fumes. I mean, ultimately, this is a question of how do we hold people accountable and support them to be more effective, safe drivers, rather, and how do we manage these autonomous vehicle support systems so that vehicles interact better with themselves and with their environment rather than a fully automated system. That's my vision, and it's a different one than Mr. O'Toole's. Sam Kasman, right here in front. Um, Randall, the, the infrastructure problems seem enormous, which is not to say they're not surmountable, but my question is, Suppose we just rely on automotive technology and not highway technology to move towards your vision, just as, you know, we move to uh, cruise control without any highway modifications. Uh, how likely is that, in your mind, uh, uh, to be uh, an okay approach? I think that approach will work. I'm not necessarily sold that that's the best approach. I think making some minor modifications to highways will accelerate uh, adaptation, uh, but the, I think the automobile industry has collectively given up on that approach, and we're seeing the automobile industry develop driverless technologies that do not rely on any modifications at the highway of the highways at all, or at most, 
that rely on wireless communications, what are called uh, vehicle-to-infrastructure communications at, at intersections and things like that. Uh, so the one problem is that they are relying on these lane-keep technologies that, that can detect stripes. They can detect the stripes in night or day, but they don't do very well when they get covered with ice and snow because the stripes are invisible. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I think the idea of putting little magnets in the road that can, whose signal can penetrate the ice and snow would work better than the stripes. Uh, I'm actually going to be debating that question tomorrow at lunchtime on the Hill with uh, the head of research with Volkswagen. It's not really going to be a debate, but his, his opinion is no new highway technology. It's all going to be in the automobile. And it will be done by 2030. You should go to uh, go Google Volkswagen car of 2030 to look and see what their vision of the future is. It's entirely driverless. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, Michael would love it because it's based on car sharing rather than individual car ownership. Okay, so if I could, if, oh, you have another one. Yes, okay. Mm. Carol George and I have been driving since 1936, <laughs> and I have commuted in Boston, in Baltimore, and in New York areas. And I know a little bit about what causes congestion. And Because a prevailing speed car striking a stopped one does so with 100 times the impact energy of striking a car traveling 10% slower, and drivers have 10 times more judgment time to take minor evasive action at the 10% speed difference, so wouldn't it continuing the lane line between the merging lanes through the taper parallel to the outside lane line, giving entering drivers the complete legal and safety freedom to accelerate up to prevailing speed, eliminating that stopping hazard that causes over six reported accidents per day on the Capitol Beltway. Now, th this this is something that can be done very quickly, very easily, and I have made some tests by on the George Washington Parkway, getting just south of Old Town, where two drivers at forty miles an hour in that thirty-five mile an hour zone got cars following us at 60% greater throughput than was normally going across the Wilson Bridge at peak. Okay. Anybody have a thought on that? Well, I think those kinds of innovations are being made all over the country. We do see innovations in highways. Uh, at least we have seen innovations. I don't know if they're still going on, but if you compare, say, the Wilbercross Parkway, which is one of the first limited-access highways built, it was built in Connecticut in the 1930s, you compare that with, say, the Century <coughs> Freeway, one of the more recent limited-access highways built in Los Angeles, 
Uh, you do see longer on and off ramps like you're talking about in the more recent roads, and that allows for much greater throughput. You see that the off ramps. Longer ramps don't do it. Well, and, yeah, and you, and you see longer merge lanes, and in fact, a, a large part of the lanes are merge lanes. They don't so. continue the lane line, they, the, the outside people have to stop because of a law that was ages ago about you can't get into somebody else's lane without yielding. So okay. People have to stop, and they do. Okay. All right. Let's move on. The woman there in the in the front back row. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to bring the discussion back a little, not only to transportation, but to uh, livability, um, um, smart growth, density, and cities in, that are developing, because I believe that the transportation portion is really very important for cities that are growing and, and increased density, such as Seattle has, um, Alexandria is doing it, uh, Columbia, Maryland, what have you. How would you link, you all talk about um, living in a, in, in like a town center environment where you can walk to the stores and all the, uh, uh, you did this, Mike, talk about uh, getting there without having to get in your car, using public transportation. I know Mr. O'Toole, you know, likes this concept as well, as long, along with transportation. I think Mr. Downs, where you could work from home and you wouldn't, you know, would cut down on, tr on congestion, but you're right. I believe people who have money are not going to get out of their cars to take public transportation. They're going to drive. So... As cities, major cities, are beginning to have increased population and are developing and they want to look at, quote-unquote, smart growth, density, you're going to have the haves and have-nots in the single-family homes. And I don't know, um, Michael, how you're going to say everyone's going to be able to live together because if you can't Give afford... Question. The question is, how do you tie all this together? Who should pay for the transportation issue? Should it be at the state and local level or the federal level? And how do you include changes in land use or density uh, laws or whatever for different communities? Because I think they're all connected. I don't think you can separate any of those out. And metro and what have you. Well, my answer is short. I think we should end subsidies to transportation, end subsidies to development, and end zoning and let the chips fall where they may. And if people want to live in high-density communities, developers will build for them. And if people want to live in low-density communities, built developers will build for them, and people will get what they want. I think markets work. I think the people who advocate smart growth, who want to have urban growth boundaries and, and transit-oriented development subsidies and minimum density zoning and things like that, they don't believe the market works, and they're trying to overcome some market failure that I don't think is exi exists. Where have you been for the past... Five years. Oregon. <laughs> markets don't work in Oregon. Have you, have you heard of the fiscal crisis in the United States? Do markets always work? <laughs> I've got an answer to that one, too. But <laughs> We did a different book on that. It's called Financial Fiasco. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, we, we, we've lived in a, in a nation that for the last more, more than half a century has been deeply subsidizing uh, car dependence and sprawl and and working through a whole set of mechanisms, uh, federal housing programs, insurance redlining, um, and a host of, of other things, the way we price car insurance, um, the way that we price public transportation, the way that we subsidize driving and a lot of the hidden costs of driving. 
that has been driving people to drive more and reducing the effectiveness of our public transport. Our public transport system certainly could be vastly more efficient and effective than they are today, and we need to expand choices and en enrich uh, how well they operate, how efficiently they are. We need to give people a richer way of opportunities to walk and bike. I mean, we're deeply in danger until the last couple of years of, of having several generations of kids grow up without knowing that it's you can actually walk where you live and where you work. And that's a basic human right we've enjoyed since, you know, earliest prehistory. And, and the fact that we don't walk as much as we used to is now showing up in our adverse health, uh, our, our obesity epidemic and the like. So I think livable communities that we're hearing as a theme for the, the current administration <clears throat> I think is a, is a good theme. It's a theme that does unite a lot of different approaches. It, it, it unites the approach of giving people better choices. It unites the theme of giving people better public spaces in which we can spend time with each other which is what cities are all about. It's, it's why we like to, historically, living in cities. The, the flight to the suburbs of affluent and middle-class people, uh, to the outer edges of uh, American metro areas, I think is an aberration that has happened over the last 40 or 50 years that defies what has happened in most of history, in which the, those with the most resources have tended to live in the best locations, the most central locations. Um, in cities. And I think we're now reverting back to that mean. If you look at where the suburban, uh, where the real estate values have collapsed the most in the last few years, it's been the outer exurban areas where we're way overbuilt for probably 10 or 20 years with car dependent real estate. And the places that have held up the best are the real estate markets where you can walk and bike and have access to transit. And you don't have to spend as much time in your car. So I think. Playing to livability means playing to that reversion to the reassertion of very old market dynamics that, that the most attractive places to live are the places with the best central accessibility, the best proximity of jobs to houses and recreation. And we need to be planning our transportation for urban areas for livability and choice. I think we're, no, I think I think we're about out of No, I think the poor will always Randall. be with us, so... <laughs> Um, Randall, I'm going to give you a chance to make a final comment. No, I, I'm fine. I, I think if you read my book, you'll get my answers to both Michael and, and Tony, uh, although it sounds to me like we agree on a lot more than we disagree on. All right. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Randall O'Toole. The book is Gridlock, available here on the Cato website and at fine bookstores everywhere.